Hello and thank you for joining us for the Dublin Review Conversations 2021. I'm Angela Flannery. Conversations is an annual event where we invite contributors to the magazine to discuss their work. The theme for Conversations 2021 is beginnings and I'm joined by four writers whose work has recently appeared in the Dublin Review. Chetna Maru is a short story writer and novelist whose fiction debut Western Lane will be published in spring 2023. Chetna was born in Kenya and grew up in Britain. She began contributing to the Dublin Review in 2020 when her short story Shoreline appeared in number 79 of the magazine. Aishigul Savas is a novelist, short story writer and essayist who grew up in London, Copenhagen and Istanbul. Her debut novel, Walking on the Ceiling, was published in 2019. Her second novel, White on White, will be published in early 2022. She's been contributing to the Dublin Review since 2019. Our third contributor is Brian Dillon. He's a writer, critic and essayist from Dublin. He's published seven books, including Essayism, Suppose a Sentence and In the Dark Room, which won the Irish Book Award for Nonfiction in 2005. Brian lives in London and has been contributing nonfiction to the review since 2003. And our final contributor is Tim McGowan, who is from County Kilkenny, but has been living in Mexico since 2013. He's a journalist, short story writer and novelist. His debut novel, Call Him Mine was published in 2019. The follow-up, How To Be Nowhere, came out last year. Tim has been contributing to the review since 2019. Guys, thank you very much for joining us for Conversations 2021. Um, This year, the pandemic means that Conversations is an online event yet again, but that means that we can talk to contributors from around the world. I'll come back to that, the various locations that you're all in and where you originally come from. But the theme for Conversations 2021 is beginnings. So I'd like to follow that thread and go right back to the start to when each of you began writing. And Aishigul, if I could start with you, you're originally from Istanbul. You have lived in America, England, Copenhagen and Paris. Can you give me the background to your writing when it began? It it began with reading, which I think is the case for many writers. It began with reading as a child and daydreaming. Uh, But then more practically, it didn't begin until much later because I studied anthropology in university and I had this idea that, you know, I'd become an academic or I would do field work or I'd work for an NGO. But then I, throughout university and the years that followed, I began to feel that I wasn't very good at anything. And I really (laughs) wasn't very good at the jobs that I wanted to do. I was living in California uh, right after university, working a dreadful job. And um, during my lunch breaks, I would turn my the, the oral histories I collected while writing my thesis, my anthropology thesis, into short stories. And then later, you know, whenever I traveled and I was feeling alone, I would try my hand at at writing essays or or stories and it didn't occur to me until much later that this was the one thing that I kept returning to while I was failing failing it every other career so I would say that would be the the start of my writing to understand that it's just the one thing that I I did naturally and um a bit you know um obsessively as well. Yeah, because writing isn't something 
that you start out as a child. When you grow up, what do you want to be? I'm going to be a writer. You know, if you're good at writing, people will tell you to do things like try your hand at journalism, which is in fact what one of our other contributors, Tim McGowan, did. Tim, can you talk to me about how you started writing and your, you know, your early forays into that world? Yeah. Uh, so I, I suppose like when I was about 10, I guess I started to feel quite bored by the TV programs and video games that I was interacting with when I was very small. The stories never seemed to quite go where I wanted them to. And um, it was a way to sort of uh, overlay that with language, basically. And over time, I, I came to feel as though language was sort of like an independent layer over the top, like a kind of a caress of the reality. And it had things kind of appear twice in my head in a different dimension. As a teenager, then listening to quite a lot of music, I, I just loved writing about it. You know, it felt like it felt like, yeah, it felt like not quite translation, but like um, sort of a holographic change or something. I was inhabiting it somehow. And um, I, I, I started at the beginning of university uh, when I was about 18 or something like that. Um, writing uh, just before, actually, sorry, the summer just before writing music uh, sorry writing album reviews concert reviews in in these these tiny restricted um word counts of like 250 words or whatever and it it, it did feel like the strictures of a sonnet you know or, or, or a closed form or whatever and uh, I, I genuinely think that those are probably easier than right trying to capture hours what feels like hours of impressions on the tape of your head in in, in a tiny quantity of words and i was getting paid for it too so i was like fuck this is this is like you know, this, this, this thing's got legs, you know. And then after sort of an abortive PhD thesis coming out of a scholarship I had, I, I ran away to Mexico, and that, which is, again, like, uh, it's not, it's not it, it sounds crazy than it was. Like, I, I did want to be there. Um, my first memories of reading are from that experience I had as a nine-year-old leafing through encyclopedias at my grandfather's house, which is interesting because, you know, the word archive is from the word for father's house, you know, but like that deepest archive is my grandfather's house. And just these, this, this, this like codochrome blue from a very old piece of paper and these like vivid greens from a Rivera mural that was reproduced on, on in, in the page, or whatever. Uh, I, I wanted to be close to those colors because they seemed to be redolent of my first experiences of reading, you know. So uh, without very many options and uh, having spent uh, quite a grim couple of years in Dublin, to be honest, I, I wasn't very happy there. I felt, I felt back to life in a big way, you know. And so um, I was writing book reviews and interviewing authors for a small magazine in Dublin as well. And I, I wrote to this really great journalist, uh, Alfred Cortado, who's from Durango, and he works in the border region. I wrote to him wanting to interview him and review his book. And he said, don't, don't, don't do that. Like, just come to the cantina, come meet the guys. And, you know... Uh, I met all these like professional full-time long-term foreign correspondents and I thought like uh, they look like they're having way more fun than English teachers I know so I just started pitching articles to editors and was able to abandon teaching then and and, and just live from live from journalism for a while. There's a lot of snobbery around uh, making a living out of writing I mean you're talking about your first work as a writer or when you really got into writing was through journalism I mean certainly I've written as a journalist for well over 20 years now but I remember the first creative writing workshop I did about six years ago and people were asked in it you know when did you start writing and I was like well I write every day I'm a writer and there was kind of a hum of disapproval that went around when it transpired that I was writing columns and writing newspaper articles that somehow that wasn't good enough and um, so Brian I suppose 
what do you make of that idea that, you know, being a writer has to be that you're writing fiction or you're writing poetry or you're, you know, that nonfiction, it seemed to me, just didn't pass as writing when I told people that I wrote every day. It wasn't respected as much. I'm asking you because you write pretty much nonfiction all the time, with the exception of one novella that you wrote. You've written seven books of nonfiction. You've contributed 23 pieces of nonfiction to the Dublin Review. I think that um, when I started writing or when I started, you know, it's it's very difficult to figure out where the beginnings are. I think beginnings are always not quite where we um, imagine them to be or where where people claim that they are. My first professional writing was a little bit like Tim, very short reviews, in this case, book reviews for Time Out magazine in London. They're about the length of a, a bus ticket, 250 to, to 300 words. And again, like Tim, I, I thought of them poetically. I thought of these as uh, as things that that should have should have a, a kind of style, a polish, a, a flair uh, about them, um, as well as saying something about something helpful, hopefully to uh, to a reader. I never had um, growing up a kind of sense that nonfiction was a a field in which you would say that you were a writer, let alone uh, an essayist. My ambition as a teenager was, like Tim, to write about music. I wanted to emulate my heroes, uh, people who wrote for the NME, like Ian Penman and, and Paul Morley, who brought to writing about the most fleeting art forms, this extraordinary sense of intensity, of style, of wanting to impress a reader with their undoubtedly deeply pretentious vocabularies, but also some kind of like daring and risk at the level uh, of sentences and the level of, of texture and atmosphere in, in their writing. And there wasn't really a name for this for me growing up. Or if, the if there was a name, it was journalism. And it took me a long time to realise, it took me until my late 20s, I think, to realise that the options were not only as a writer who, who wasn't a poet, wasn't a writer of nonfiction. The options weren't only, on the one hand, a journalistic career, or on the other, a kind of academic writing, academic criticism, that there was something else. When I when I started writing those 250-word uh, reviews, I started to remember that there was a tradition of this, uh, of this, this paying attention to language uh, in nonfiction writing. And of course, now I've, I've given it a name uh, uh, in one book, which is essayism. But that wasn't really, as exactly as you say, that wasn't really available at that point as a self-description. Mm. Chetney, your background is not in journalism or any kind of writing. Uh, you're publishing your debut in 2023. You are an early career writer. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you got into writing when you realised that, oh, this is something I do and I'm good at it? I think, uh, so. well, I guess going you know, far back to the beginning, it's very similar to I Should Go, it starts with reading. Um, and I... I was quite a passive reader, I think. Um, you know, Tim was talking about not liking the way stories in TV or, or games sort of went, whereas I think it would never have occurred to me to think about kind of changing a narrative or analysing, you know, what was happening or trying to make meaning from it. I just was completely uh, immersed in a world and, and that was it, you know. It, it, I don't know. I think that's quite passive in some ways. And... What I wanted to do was all kind of linked with reading. I, I wanted to, to work in a library. Um, 
But then as you said, I, I did something completely different. I grew up and I, I became an accountant. I I did sort of write fiction in that, uh, I wrote a couple of stories in my 20s and both kind of scraps that I didn't edit. And so there's obviously an impulse there to write. And I felt there was a difference between sort of my speaking voice and my writing voice. And, and you know, I thought, I think, I think maybe I wrote a lot of uh, letters as well when I was younger when I kind of stuck at it so I've obviously had a few goes at going back to writing but when I stuck at it um I don't know maybe it was to do with confidence so that the last time that I tried writing I felt a bit more confident with it. I suppose when you are going to make that move from it being a very private thing that you do and you're thinking about writing and you're reading and you're sitting down and you're you know testing the water and trying to get words down you know, you complete a piece and then people will often submit them into competitions or submit them into journals or into magazines. And I'm just wondering what your experience of that was. Did you find that helpful to you? Did it help progress your careers as writers? Ashigul. I wanted to say something about the snobbery of, um, you know, the fiction and, and nonfiction and calling yourself a writer in in the medium that, that you write in. There is also the snobbery of... Um, you know, being a writer only if you you've published, right? And you know what? At what point do you are you allowed to call yourself a writer? Is it the first time you write a short story? Is it the first time you read something and you think, I want to do something just like that? Is it the first time you're published? Is it the first time your book is published? Right? And there's so many um, there's so many beginnings of becoming a writer and being able to call yourself a writer um, and also say to the world, this is my, you know, this is my work. This is what I do. In terms of submitting to magazines or having that sort of confidence, I think for me, it wasn't even um, a magazine, but it was the first time someone else said, this is good. I like it. And I felt that, you know, what I was trying to do was understood in some way. And that was all the confidence I needed. Um, well, sort of. Now, in retrospect, it's easy to say that it was then a very messy process from that confidence to actually finishing something. Uh, I, I'm really interested in what, what Chetna's saying about these the scraps that you accumulate and the point in which those scraps become something and the point in which you say, OK, I'm so sick and tired of these scraps that I, I have to give them shape. Otherwise, you know, I, I'll I'll probably stop writing. Yeah, that feeling of being drowned under fragments or something like this, you know. I, I remember I wasn't able to do very much of my my own writing, whatever that even means, uh, for a couple of years, probably through despair, to be honest. I, I, I do I do go back to those notebooks with, with the sort of like the odd sentence here, or the odd paragraph there, none of it knitting together. They look so lonely, you know. So, I, I, what was Chetna? Like, I'm really curious, really. What, what was your like? How did you home those fragments, or did you home them, or what's happening with them? No, I didn't. I mean, I, I think um, they're probably just still sitting there. As, as, and it was only two things that I wrote, kind of years apart in in my twenties. Um, but I definitely have things that sort of were a splurge. And which then I did turn into stories kind of in the in the um, last few years. I think what really helped me was, and I know this isn't an option that's available to everyone, um, but, 
but to do workshops you know they, they cost money but um I just found that kind of having a community of writers uh writing things knowing that you're going to share them I think kind of changed the dynamic for me in a way of, of it, it made uh it made me kind of try and write a story rather than scraps when I was writing fiction I think I think that a lot of fiction writers will participate in workshops and that they possibly lend themselves really well to fiction with people peer reviewing each other's work. But I wonder when you're writing nonfiction, Brian, which is the way that you write, I mean, do you share your work or is it a very solitary process writing for you? Well, I suppose given that I, I teach, um, uh, like, like others among us, um, I teach creative writing. It, it should be the case that I, I, and it is, I think, that I believe in community and I believe in, in sharing and I believe in the feedback of, uh, of one's peers as an immensely kind of nourishing uh, and useful and critical thing, context. It's not something that I ever had when I started writing. I wrote from uh, a small university town um, outside London. I pitched things to, to editors. I wrote to 20 editors and two of them wrote back I, the things that were more personal that ended up in my first book, In the Dark Room, I wrote as a kind of habit, a sort of tick. And when I mentioned or mentioned uh, to a girlfriend at the time, at some time in the mid-90s, I'm doing this thing and I think that one day it could, it could be a book. And she said, but Brian, why would anybody want to read that? So it was entirely private. It was entirely personal. I still don't, to this day, show drafts of my work to anybody, whether it's um, more substantial book projects um, that might be, you know, critical or memoiristic or about or historical, or whether it's um, articles, essays, re reviews, and so on. I'm ashamed of of my drafts, and I, sh I my wife and I, my wife's also also a writer, we share our pieces when they're published. It's exactly what what people don't imagine that that writer couples do you know we're not passing you know sheaves of paper or you know the laptop across the the breakfast table saying what do you think of this when they're published or maybe when they're edited when somebody else has had a look then we'll say this is it um so there's, there's always a degree of kind of shame and guilt about uh, about this 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 process, this, this habit that is partly about putting things in the world and is also partly kind of grubby and private. Mm. Well, let's talk about that then, the first drafts. I mean, the really, the, the stuff that's so ugly that Brian won't show to his wife until it's in final draft form. But the first drafts are appalling. Should they be shared, Tim, do you think? At what point would you be comfortable sharing your work? How much work have you done on it before it's for public consumption within a group? Within a group. I mean, I, did, I, I was lucky enough to do a creative writing master's in East Anglia about five years ago. And the tip that we were given by other students who were a bit older than us was submit your weakest work uh, so that it, it, it gets the most, um, uh, it, yeah, it's sort of like a sort of a circular firing squad from the rest of the room. And, and, and you then know where the actual core of it is and, and, uh, and stuff like that. So I'm I'm inclined to just sort of um uh yeah have at it pretty quickly. Like I, I have a couple of friends who are editors as well as friends, I guess. And uh, well, the editors first. Friend, I don't know. Look, uh, my my first draft are absolutely obscene and um, should be stopped. Many of them. But uh, when I get to the end of them, I'm usually fairly ready to have someone come in and say, 
uh, yeah, most of this is terrible, but here's the grain of what's good in it, and I'm go with that. It, it's it's because uh, like it's not because I'm one of these like first word best word types because they're dreadful, but um, it's it's more just like like it's only in the last year and a half I feel like I've gotten a bit between my teeth in terms of like my relationship with language or whatever because I started doing uh, psychoanalysis with a Lacanian, and so just that uh, emphasis on the utterance, the first person utterance. And its textures is 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 now just sort of at the forefront, and um, I feel the chambers between my various ways of thinking about language sort of losing their walls, and so I'm at this point where, like, about eight years ago, I read Faithlessness, the America Tesh novel, and there's a scene. It's the only time I've seen the word express used this many times in a in a paragraph, where the guy's got an abscess, the narrator's got an abscess on his knee, and uh, he describes the doctor as expressing the abscess until it's empty and i was like that that is it actually you know that that that's where it's at like it's the the it's the goop you know and um i i, I tend to just try to like exhaust an object like it's expression for me in that sense i'm finally able to do at least i think uh where i'm just able to exhaust an object empty it out evacuate it as bart says of saucere i think and, and chuck it aside. And then by the time like I've exhausted the object, I'm like, okay, someone else is turning to sort of come in here and see what's going on. So I'm writing a novel at the moment. It's sort of like I was saying it to Chetna before we began to call how it's like it's me turning around with a big flamethrower towards my two novels, just standing embarrassment to me because I'm, you know, very critical of my own work. And I'm just blasting it to, to, to nothing, but with the opposite of everything I've learned, you know. So you're talking about um, even in the final finish published, the book itself, that even that, as you say, is an embarrassment to you. So I've heard so many writers say this, that they can't look at their work once it's been published because that the editing process and the rewriting is never over, that you can just tinker forever. Ashigul, how did you feel looking back and walking on the ceiling when your novel was published? Have you read it since? Do you Have you looked back at it and thought, oh no, I could have done that? differently or it could have been better definitely it's I mean I can't look at it it um I don't feel that I could have done it better just because now I would I probably wouldn't write that book and it you know it feels immature it feels naive um but it's also because I've exhausted the age at which I was writing those ideas and those characters and I've exhausted a lot of the things that I was trying to say um I mean, you can't look at a first draft and you can't look at the finished product. <laughs> Often what I can look at is the drafts in between when you sort of, you lose yourself at the sentence level and you say, okay, just concentrate on this one sentence and concentrate on the paragraph and polish that um, because you can't really bear to think about the whole. Uh, and that's that to me is, you know, um, where where one's focus should be, especially when you begin to feel quite anxious about um, wanting to throw it all away. Brian, Aishigu was talking there about sentence level, which of course is something that you are hugely interested in from suppose a sentence and in the minutiae of writing. And is that where the joy really comes from when you're a writer, you know, where you're just in a sentence and you love it or you're there with a word or a couple of words together and it's so exciting, like they're dancing on the page and you could spend hours, just hours playing with this one sentence. I like that you describe it in such a joyous and, and playful fashion because it certainly never feels like that. 
Um, it, to me, uh, it's much more about trying to hew out of some you know crude lump of fact or feeling um, something that 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 has a shape that that makes sense. Of course, at the same time, there there, there is an attachment and a a pleasure and, and a kind of joy in in that level of being, as you say, in inside the sentence and the kind of the texture of that and so on. Um, I'm in a way, you know, my, my book suppose a sentence which which takes something like 25, 27 sentences and looks at them very closely is less about it's not really about the mechanics or the the, the minutiae in in a kind of technical or critical sense. I suppose I think of it, and I think of my attachment to to language at that moment where when you're in the middle of it, as much more to do with mood and and atmosphere. Um, and and a, a feeling that that is much more bewildered than it will look or will sound um, to to its reader, um, and I guess I'm always chasing that sense evidence of that kind of bewilderment in other writers, no matter how perfect their prose is, or maybe because their prose is so perfect, I'm always kind of looking for those moments where you can kind of you can see the cracks or or something is is. Is being forced into being or kind of dissolving, fading away from you. So maybe part of the attachment to, to language in, in that sense is also that it's it's the moment of like extreme vulnerability is also inseparable from the moment when you're getting it absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And how do you decide when it's actually done? Because if you tinker so much with your writing in the rewriting and editing process, do you find that you can suffocate it, that there just isn't enough room for it to breathe on the page? Have you had that experience before? So I, I talked earlier about drafts and uh, I realised, as I said, that I don't really do drafts. Um, uh, I do plans um, and pretty much everything that I write take, takes this form, apart from one one Dublin Review essay, which is about uh, Roland Barthes, which I just sat down and wrote start to finish over a weekend. Um, but usually I, I start with notes and then a really rough plan that I then flesh out so that every thousand words or so gets a page to itself of planning. And at the same time, I'm, I'm writing kind of stray sentences, stray paragraphs somewhere else in another notebook or another, another page. And once I get to the point of actually writing um, and I write everything by hand, um, it, it pretty much comes out how I want it. And the only redrafting that happens is in typing up that handwritten version. And to be honest, I mean, it, 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 I'm not sure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but it's the way it is. Not much changes between the handwritten draft and the, and, and the typed version. So I don't, this is a way I think of not having to face your question, of not having to face the moment where you think, is this done? Is this right? Is this good? Um, I just plan like crazy. And maybe my plans would look like other people's drafts, but I don't think of them as uh, as writing. And then I write the thing and then it goes. Um, and then it's then begins the equally deeply absorbing and, and fascinating and painful and pleasurable process of, of being edited. That's so interesting. I wonder, do you edit as you go along because your handwriting, does it slow you down the way that it wouldn't if you were working on a keyboard? Do the rest of you, do you handwrite or do you work on a keyboard? Tim, how, how do you go about it? Yeah, handwrite first, definitely. Um, 
I need that physical connection with the word, uh, or the, I need to feel the same sort of passing through my body a bit, you know. Um, and uh, I'll often handwrite a bunch of times without looking at previous versions until the utterance is kind of at its like kind of clearest frequency. And then I collate uh, those pieces. I have my notebook here, actually. I write in different colors as well to keep track of the um, different times, sequences or whatever of when I produced it. And when I'm typing up, it's just, a, it's like the, it's like the studio, basically. It's like a bunch of raw guitar tracks that you're like, okay. Because when you, when you record or whatever, um, you tend to play the same thing a, a whole load of times. And like some one version will just have that nice mixture between a rattiness and a, and a purity. And when I can hear that uh, by reading it out loud from the screen, I, I blow the text up huge, you know, like massive. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of inside it. And then I read it out loud. On, and and any time, like that, I'd use the punctuation a bit like sort of rests or um, quavers or whatever have you um, until the rhythm is right. And then I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm done then to show it to somebody, you know. But I call this the first draft, but like it's probably quite a few um uh, invisible draft minus five or whatever prior to that you know um it, it's just a it's the way to feel like i've dug my way out of language somehow because um mm. yeah I, I i i feel like there's an inertia a bad inertia and a kind of a, a, a kind of a molasses uh weight to utterance in my head at least and I, and uh i'm trying to just put the spaces between that this the white spaces are like a kind of a syntax to to dig mm. my way out and be able to breathe. So it's like a visual representation, a map that you have going. Yeah. With it, yeah. So, a, so a score, yeah. So Aishigul, how do you? What's your process? I mean, this, we've just heard two very different ones. There is is yours writing? Is it visual? Is it computer? How do you go about it? I start by typing, then I'll I'll write over the. The typed manuscript and all of my editing happens by hand and something something that I try to pull out in in all the drafts is the sense of bewilderment that because editing can turn it turn writing into such a polished product um, or sometimes into a punchline that I'll try to remember well what was you know what was that initial very raw bewilderment as as Brian called it um and how do I keep that intact which isn't to say that you know my original idea for what I wanted to write ends up being what I write and I preserve the bewilderment on in my head and then I you know put it on the page it's actually quite the opposite it's I have something I want to write I begin writing it and I think oh I can't do it and now I have to um, I have to listen to whatever it is that I am doing, and I have to let go of my initial idea of you know the writer I wanted to imitate and the 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 great landscape and the great atmosphere I had for this book. It might be a good time to hear some of your writing. Would you Would you read a piece for us from um, I think it's from Precipice was the, the most recent story that you published with the Dublin Review. Yes. Do you want to give us a little bit of background to this piece? It was in number 79, issue 79. Uh, well, there is no background to the story or I can't quite remember how it came about. Uh, but 
when I was looking over it yesterday to to pick a part to read from, I realized that the novel I'm working on now is basically an expansion of the story. And I had no idea that I had taken the same setup and very, very similar characters. But I mean, I guess it's, it's no surprise. Um, so now I'm I'm interested in this sort of mental replica or this tiny map of what I'm trying to do right now. It's called Precipice and I'll read the, the, the opening few paragraphs. Precipice. Mira and Thomas lived by the train station in an apartment overlooking the viaducts that ran all the way to the forest east of the city. I'd met Mira first at the library where we habitually sat across from each other at the reading room. We exchanged greetings over several afternoons Then one of us suggested going out for coffee. The following week, Thomas came to meet Mira after work and I joined them for a drink. A month into our friendship, they invited me over for dinner. Their apartment was filled with objects, each one accompanied by a story. There were Chinese lanterns, a framed tapestry of a village scene, a statue twisted and curved with recycled materials. The brimming shelves gave off a feeling of impatience to contain everything of their lives and travels, all that they found unique. After the first time, dinners at their apartment became a regular event. I would arrive with wine or dessert. Sometimes I brought things that were unusual for a guest, a bag of vegetables, fresh sardines, a box of cocoa. They were meant to mark our familiarity. Mira and Thomas made a point of leaving the door open rather than coming to greet me at the entrance. When I went to the kitchen, Mira waved theatrically for me to sit down and asked Thomas to pour me a drink. I chatted as they cooked, then we carried dishes inside and set the table together. I was given their full attention, peppered with questions, but I also had the sense that they were performing an intimacy in my presence. I'll stop there. Great. Thank you, Aishigul. Um I loved that story and um, I, I've, like I said, I just I've finished your um, novel Walking on the Ceiling recently and really enjoyed it. But I'll come back to that in a minute because there's a question I have about that for all of you. Chetna, Aishigul was talking about the point where you call yourself a writer and I'm wondering for you, would you call yourself an emerging writer, a new writer now? How comfortable are you with this as your job, I suppose, as this is what I do. This is my that word that people use. Writers call it the work. And I think when you start calling it the work that you have committed to it. I don't know that I think about uh, myself in that way, you know, that I am a writer. I think I write and that's the work that I do. And I'm happy thinking about it that way. But I definitely have a very strong uh, commitment to it. It is what I'm focusing on, at least for now. Um, you know, 100% of my time. Yeah. Brian, in essayism, you say that you have, oh, is it 1,000, 1,200 pieces written in a folder that, and your your label on this folder is reviews because even after all of these years and all the books that you've published and you've won awards and, you know, I mean, you're, what should we say, 23 pieces you've published in the Dublin Review that you still are looking at your work as being it's still in the same folder that it was at the very, very beginning of your career as a writer. It has to be a work ethic. I mean, you have to get up every day and sit down at the desk. How do you discipline yourself to do that? So I, I think I, as you were speaking, I was um, trying to check how many files are in that folder that is called reviews. And I can't find it at the moment, which is slightly worrying. 
Um, but I think it's still called that after after 20 years, um, precisely because, as you say, there's, there's something to do with a kind of um, workaday sense of labor, of, of, of turning things out, uh, of making objects and, and sending them out uh, into the world, that it is a job, it's a, it's a labor, it's a daily practice at, at quite a kind of um, mundane or, or kind of artisanal uh, level. And I think that that, in a way, is, is my way of tricking myself into a kind of application and, and, uh, and rigor and discipline that I otherwise, and I suppose most writers probably feel like this, that I, I otherwise feel I completely lack. Um, I, I, I consider myself an extraordinarily lazy person. And one way in which I can fool myself into not being that lazy person um, is by dividing things up into very small chunks, um, morsels, fragments. And so that sense that, you know, maybe one reason I, I, I keep that folder around with it's now probably kind of 1,200, maybe 1,500 pieces in it, is that I think of writing as something that is parceled up into these small, manageable fragments. Manageable, but also maybe in some way kind of perfectible, um, because the whole, whether it's a book or a long, long essay, feels absolutely radically unperfectible. Um, and if I can trick myself into getting each of these things right one by one, then they will at least they will at last amount to something more ambitious, amount to something that that, that has a heft and presence um, the, the, that is greater um, than those parts. But I have to trick myself into doing it, I think. And um, when I was introducing the four of you at the beginning, um, I did refer to where you were all living and where you were from. And one thing that you do have in common is that none of you live in the place that you were born in. Um, so, Brian, you're Irish, you live in London. Uh, Chetna, you're of Indian heritage, you were born in Kenya, you live in England. And Ashigul, you were born in Turkey and I think you grew up in two or three different places and now you live in, in, you live in Paris. And Tim... County Kilkenny to Mexico City. I can't think of any like two more contrasted things. But Tim, if I could ask you and actually to all of you, um, I have this question that being an outsider in the place that you live, the perspective that that gives you, um, does it free you up? And I mean, Tim, in your case in particular, because Mexico City, I would have thought, was someplace that's quite impenetrable, especially to somebody who's from rural County Kilkenny. Um, but that it must afford you a certain amount of freedom being that foreign there and being white and English speaking. And does it buy you a certain privilege there? And do you manage to, you know, do you get away with stuff that you wouldn't if you were Mexican and writing? I try, I try not to anyway, you know, because um, I'm a guest, you know, um, and I, I guess like it means that I, I got to, just listen very, very, very carefully to everything around me, you know, to make sure that I'm, I'm not um, getting something wrong. I guess I was uh, oddly enough, like being from the countryside, I'm sort of like slightly afraid of anything, you know, larger than a cow uh, for a long, long time. You know, including a class structure which is significantly larger than a cow. Uh, that that sort of reticence that's in me, just as a default, is really useful for just not. Um, speaking at a turn basically you know um and outsiderness you see the weird thing is that like it never felt 
so far away I, I felt like I was going home when I arrived because the images were so dear to me and, and the weirdest thing is that the first image I saw was in fact uh, maybe four two to four blocks across a park from my first address in the place by pure coincidence you know so like the taxi would have turned right past that image and taken me to my first home in the city so I was like oh god if you put that in a novel like it would be unbelievable I did put it in a novel because you're allowed to be unbelievable like, and um, but do you imagine writing fiction that's that's set in Ireland? Because I mean, I've read your novel, I've read your stories in the review, and um, you've such a distinctive voice. Well, maybe would you read actually the opening couple of paragraphs there, if you would, if you have them to hand, of um, yeah. of meteorites, please, if you would. Yeah, give people a sure. taste of what your writing is like. Uh, God help them. Uh, when Teresa arrives with her autopsy report, Alejandro is standing in the far corner of his office, peering at the map on his corkboard. On the desk behind him, a printer chugs out his report on the morning shooting. Nothing remarkable had happened. After arresting the cashier at the scene, he shooed the uniformed cop away from the till, collected CCTV footage that backed up the cashier's confession, and went back to the precinct. No surprises in this, Teresa says, and drops the autopsy report onto his desk beside an untouched slice of chocolate cake. Thank you, Alejandro says, without looking away from the map's rash of little cutted stickers. Red for murder, grey for rape, black for common assault. He presses a red sticker onto a point on the map representing the corner of Calle Motolinia and Avenida Independencia, where a homeless, unnamed kid aged about 22 tried to rob the cashier of a convenience store only to get shot in the face with a 45 that the cashier claims to have found in a bin in Romasur. Although it wasn't nice, it wasn't Juarez either. Whose birthday is it? Teresa takes the chair in front of Alejandro's desk. Sorry? She points at the cake. All oh, right. Alejandro draws a plus sign across the sticker to indicate the kid's death. An X is when the person who dies isn't the assailant. I don't know, to be honest. You can finish it if you like. Now I'm sweet enough. Fair point. Alejandro unlids his pen, writes the day's date on the pink circle. When he sees the digits... A cold weight like a billiard ball rolls down his gullet. Okay, so it strikes me when I read that and hear you reading it that, you know, unless you had worked as a journalist in Mexico City and unless you had covered the drug cartels and you were familiar with this uh, material from your work for Al Jazeera and Reuters, that it would be very, very hard to inhabit those characters. Gosh, I, I mean... I guess I just interviewed them in my head, you know, like I got, I got like, I, I got like 25, 26 questions just to start them talking um, in my, in my mind. And um, these short stories are from a link collection of about 11. They all orbit around a recovery group uh, in Mexico City, Narcotics Anonymous recovery group. And um, even though that's another place where the first person utterance is primordial. And um, I've written them all in free and direct. And that's because I found it like just a way to like get outside the first person utterance, um, having recorded them in my head in interviews and sort of started them up talking to me. I was then able to kind of shut them up a bit from time to time with a bit of plot or, um, mm. yeah, just like, oh, here's how the world actually looks rather than as filtered. Well, not actually, looks, but how, how the world looks to me. Uh, rather than filter directly through their monologue or whatever, you know. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not gonna say right what you know because that that is nonsense. I don't think anyone knows anything. Like, but but um, like, I, I guess everyone experiences things through their body, and fiction seems to me like philosophy continued through the medium of the body. You know, um, like I love Merleau-Ponty, for example. You know, and 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 I guess just like trying to trying to stand like when i'm stuck in a text i'm like well okay how does the person the roof of the person's mouth feel and how does the soles of their feet feel and i'm like embodied again you know and 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 that that's the way i'd be like able to know exactly what alejandro's like office smells like or looks like but that that glimpse of the corkboard was just um it's not quite real like but i did see a map in a policeman's office when i was covering a story about a forensic cleaner and um we were just walking past because the forensic cleaner guy he'd take his business card and just pitch police officers to see if they'd like tell him when there was a murder so he could clean it up essentially but i just looked over some lad's shoulder and i saw a huge map of the city and it was covered with these like dots and i was like christ like if that was me what would my system be you know basically it's a it's the body again you know you spoke there about the first person and the close third but I, it just occurs to me now, your novel was written in the first and Ashigul, your debut was written in first as well. Chetna, is yours a first person narrative? OK, yeah. what do you think about that idea that for a debut novelist or, you know, debut fiction writer, that the first person is the safest and the easiest to master, the easiest uh, perspective? I think it's a perspective that feels easier to start with because you can get to a voice and you you kind of put yourself or you put yourself in that the head of that that person and feel like you're going through but then there are in some ways as you go further through into the story there are more limitations because you only have that person's perspective on things and you have to really um stick to that you you, you can't un- unless you find a a a, a a mechanism to go out of that perspective you have to stay in it it's actually interesting because until i started writing my debut novel i would only write in the third person um and i often wrote from the points of view of men and one of my tricks in getting myself to write this is like brian's you know manageable um chunks chunks of work or chunks of writing is I would say well I'm not writing fiction I'm actually writing an essay and I try to think about the fiction writing as if it were an essay as if um you know if my character is a painter how would how would I describe this painter um in in an essay and then I would it's very liberating for me to think about this because then there are no fictional rules to follow. I can just say whatever I want about them in the same way that, and also invent, you know, if I were writing a profile of an artist and I wished that their art was a bit more extraordinary or their studio was more beautiful, I can just make that up in fiction, but still keep the voice that isn't the fictional voice somehow that, that comes with so many rules of, how the pacing should be, how the dialogue should be, how much scene there should be. Um, And then with the first, I actually don't know why I I wanted to write in the first person. It seemed natural. Maybe it did seem a bit more accessible. But when when the, the novel came out during your reading, someone asked me, how many books do you have to write uh, until you can stop writing autobiography? 
which was such a strange question to me because I thought, well, it's not autobiography, but you know, of, of course there are elements I'm writing about cities that, that I know, but the character doesn't resemble me at all. And I've been actually wondering exactly the opposite. How many books do I have to write or how much do I have to write in order to begin writing autobiography, in order to really begin to write what is most intimate and, and most vulnerable? And how many layers do I have to excavate that I can get a little bit deeper in, in the writing? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are those who'd say that all writing is autobiographical in the sense that it comes through you, that you're the filter. So it comes from your experience and your observations and, and, and that it goes through you. But yeah, absolutely, that people will assume particularly because your novel is about a young Turkish writer who's living in Paris and you are a young Turkish writer living in Paris and that it seems to be too much of a leap of imagination for people to to believe that, it, you know, that you're not the same person as Nunu, your narrator. But Brian, it's interesting um, what Aisha Ghul is saying there to me because with the personal essay, which I think is the type of essay you're talking about there, Aisha Ghul, you know, in the last number of years, particularly in Ireland, you know, I'm thinking about Dyrne Negriafa, I'm thinking about Sinead Gleeson, Patrick Frayne, a lot of Irish writers, people we've published um, in the Dublin Review, that the personal essay, when you're reading it, um, the narrative of it, it, you do forget that this isn't fiction and vice versa sometimes with fiction, it does read like a personal essay. Uh, the essay has has it been reinvented by, you know, a willingness to write about personal things in essay form, Brian? I wonder. I mean, I, I, I think back to, you know, 20 years ago when I was beginning to think about my first book or 25 years ago when I was writing those little private fragments that I uh, talked about earlier and showing them to nobody. And that was an era the the late 90s, early 2000s, when people talked incessantly um, about a turn towards the personal, um, towards memoir uh, in particular. And I wonder if what we're seeing is is merely a kind of attachment of the label um, of essay to a kind of writing that always exists, but finds different modes, finds different kind of channels, some of which may well be fiction or masquerading uh, as fiction. So I suppose what what I mean is that the the essay, I think you talked earlier about the essay being kind of uh, undefinable. I don't think that we can say there is is a new form called the personal essay that has arrived on the scene, you know, in in recent years. People make this claim uh, all the time, because I think the different currents that pass through the personal essay are coming from so many different directions um, and have have existed for decades, if not centuries. So it's very, these kinds of definitions, these kinds of labels, as a writer, as an essayist, and an an essayist who wants to to talk about the essay, I still can't can't think of it in in exactly those, those kinds of terms, if that makes sense. I think of it more as a um, a kind of uh, a mood or an, or an atmosphere, um, the essay or the personal essay, than a form in itself, if if that makes sense. I think it's it's got so many com- competing kind of impulses and histories mm-hmm. running through it. Sorry, I keep wanting to come back to this idea of place with the four of you and we go off on tangents and that's fine. But as I was saying, you all live in different places to the places that you were born in. And um, I'm wondering, we've spoken a little bit there about courage, about how important place is in your writing. Tim, I think you've kind of answered this, but 
um, Chatna, for you, with your novel, which we I know is about an Indian father with three children. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it's about and whether your own heritage and a sense of place plays a, an important role in that, whether it's significant? Yeah, so the novel is about three sisters living in Luton, um, who in the uh, in the nineteen eighties, whose father enlists them in a, a rigorous regimen of playing squash at the local leisure centre after their mother's death. And so I, I did grow up in Luton. Um, and in terms of the the novel, I think that you know it's not an autobiographical novel. Um, but I've obviously used Luton in, in a way just to ground myself in a particular place. Um, but the, the family's kind of background and, and heritage is, sim- is similar in many ways to my own. Mm. Um, I think I have used it mainly as a way of grounding myself in this, in this first novel, uh, rather than it being autobiographical in any way. Yeah, um, but... I suppose what I'm getting at is the idea of place and whether you feel as writers that you can write about places that you haven't been. Because I should when I read Walking on the Ceiling, um, I it I, such a huge sense of Paris and the beauty of it. I mean, I really felt like I was a tourist and that, you know, that M was bringing me, Nunu and M were bringing me around Paris. The same then in Turkey and the forest with the uncle. And I got a very, very strong sense that location and... Yeah, landscape were very, very important, almost as important as character to you in your writing. Definitely. And it's I think it's almost always the the initial point of inspiration. I'll say this is the place I want to write about. Not always um real places. I'll say I want to write um a a book that takes place in a very spacious apartment that feels a little bit ghostly. Um in the case of Walking on the Ceiling, I wanted to write about Paris because I had recently moved to Paris and I, I, I was seeing it fresh. And so I was sort of picking up on what made the city unique. And I wanted to write about the joy of walking in Paris. But the one thing that I always end up doing in my writing is I'm very much drawn to place. And then I am also a, an outsider to every place I've lived in. So I end up making my characters outsiders too, which then I think I can get away with writing about these places because I don't have to be a native. I don't have to, no one can call me out on making mistakes or say like, well, it, it's not actually like that in Mexico City. No one would go to this restaurant that's only for tourists. Well, my characters are tourists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you, you mentioned us all being um, living in cities that we weren't born in, which is people, you know, one often hears this cliche about uh, fictional narrators that they're always outsiders to society or they're um, always the introverts that, that end up observing and, and telling the, the story, which I think is true for the perspective of writing as well, that you're, you have to be looking at your subject from uh, a remove, from a distance. Um, and the fact that, you know, I happen to, to be living as a stranger, one step removed from, from my subjects maybe is just mimetic of, of the, the writing process. Three of you are what would be called early career writers. I don't. I hope that isn't 
a term that's offensive to you. I don't I don't like the term emerging. Emerging from what exactly? You know, with your early career writers. And I wonder, you know, there's so much emphasis while you, I mean, I know that two of you have done MFAs or MAs in writing and that, you know, Chetna, that you've done your courses, your workshops and that you've won a couple of competitions and all of that, that, you you know, you follow that process. You get an agent and then you get a book deal and people, emerging writers always want to know about that you know, or aspiring writers. But of course, once you're agented and you have your book deal, it's only the beginning, really. The door is open, you walk through it. But the pressure, that's where the pressure really begins, you know. Um, So I'm wondering how you, yeah, how that sits with you now. I mean, did it it change things for you and how you saw yourself as a writer? Is it like things just got really serious? Um, I actually just yesterday was telling a student of mine who is desperate to get an agent and seems to think that once she has an agent, then all problems will be solved. And, you know, just if I can only get an agent. And I was trying to convey to her this sense of loss, I feel, about the the before state when I think I was imagining a bit more wildly and I was reading my own books and I was reading not not published stuff just anything that that I happened to to come across and I I think it was a wilder and um sort of more joyful space and a, a bit messier definitely and and then things you know after getting an agent publishing when things do get serious you, there is also for me a loss of the the creative or the irresponsible I don't really know how to call it but you know this this feeling of you're walking in the dark and you don't really know what you're doing except you know you're guided by your instincts there there was a bit of a loss of that um which you know it, that's the state I'd like to recover every time that I write Tim did you have an experience around that yeah I was nodding away there because uh, so much of it resonated I I just I'm I'm lucky, you know. Uh, I live quite far away, and um, I often feel as though nobody gives a shit if I write another sentence again. Uh, that's very liberating. Uh, I don't read reviews. Uh, uh, I, this is one of very the very few events I've, I've ever done. Not because I flee them, but uh, I am quite happy that they, they fly over my head because. I am desperate to preserve that sense of uh, that ludic feeling, you know, that um, not quite isolation because because I, I do. I'm very lucky, you know, like I do have a, like some people who are invested in my career who are wonderful, you know, and and they're a bit like I'm like a 19th century diver, like at the bottom of this big sea. And now and again, I got a tug on the line to remind me there's a ship up there, you know, that's and that's kind of sufficient. But I do need to stay in that um, isolation like it's quite arrogant not to read reviews. I know it's you're supposed to think your book is like in dialogue with uh, contemporary texts and stuff like that, and I, and I do think of it that way. But there's another way. There are other ways to be abreast of that conversation, you know, or contemporaneity or whatever the hell. Um, and also the books that I want to be in dialogue, like they're little. They're not old. They're just a little bit older, and they're also like quite out of fashion and kind of kind of crap, to be honest. So nobody talks about them, and that's that's also quite liberating, you know. So I, I'm at pains to preserve it because I do just want to be the 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 kid, uh, you know, alone-ish uh, in the corner, uh, uh, taking a line for a walk. 
think that really resonates with me as well. Um, that wish to preserve that that innocence and freedom, um, or to return to it. Um, but I also think that um, I guess when you're reading, I think you kind of it's the only time I, I feel you really cross the border into another mind. Then um, when you're working with like a really great editor, I think you can feel like there's another mind alongside yours in the work. And so sort of the the whole thing of, of publication, um, whether it's a story in a journal or you know, just working with editors in any way does open that up completely. So that's a bit, maybe a more joyful aspect of, of the whole thing. I think I might want to say in, in, in response to uh, uh, everybody's points in to this question, but also in response, Angela, to, to your original question about emerging um, and what what emerge being an emerging writer might might mean um, speaking as the as the therefore non-emerging writer among the uh, the four of us is that the, the chances are that life and the nature of your writing and the nature of a career is going to you know interrupt the arc that somebody like Aishagil's student who imagines that you know after after you find an agent, somehow everything's going to be okay. The chances are that things are going to get in the way, um, that there will be moments of failure, there will be moments of discouragement, there will be moments of silence that may well be the things that give you exactly that sense of renewed you know, uh, vulnerability, ambition, um, uh, amazement at, at the possibilities and the difficulty uh, of what you're trying to do. There are great advantages um, to being a minor writer, for example. You know, it's it's much easier when you don't have the kind of success that perhaps many writing students are hoping for. It's much easier to find that the accidents of your career also become, it's cliched, but also become kind of uh, opportunities. And there's something else I think, and uh, again, uh, this is going back to something that, that, that Aishagil said really early on in our, our conversation, um, about having exhausted a particular uh, age or moment in life that you that you're writing about, um, you know, age will do things to you too, you know, um, and the the accidents, good and bad, uh, of life will will change your your writing, and also you 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 are faced after after a certain time, and I think for me it was maybe the first the first seven or eight years of writing, of having kind of a few books out and, and realizing that they weren't necessarily in terms of sales or fame or whatever going to set the world on fire, that I would have to reinvent what I did uh, as a writer and or, or just give up, really. And, and I think that the last few books and the book that I'm working on, on now are kind of a different phase. But I'm, I'm 52 and I now have to think to myself, if I got into this game into this job because I thought I could carry on doing it till I drop. What's the next decade? What's the next decade and a half? And that that's a really serious, you know, desperately serious feeling because it's not at all obvious. It's not not obvious in the slightest. I could quit and just teach out the rest of my my days and nothing happens. But that's it's not really an option. 
So the you know, in other words, life, the writing itself, and and the precarious and unpredictable nature of a career are going to give you plenty of opportunity to have to rethink, reinvent, restart everything. Well, Brian. That seems to me an excellent philosophical note to draw our conversation to a close on. I want to thank all four of you for talking to me today for this podcast. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you having read your work in the Dublin Review. Our contributors were Brian Dillon, Eshigul Shavas, Chetna Maru and Tim McGowan. I'm Angela Flannery and you've been listening to Conversations 2021, a special edition Dublin Review podcast. The Dublin Review is edited by Brendan Barrington and is published quarterly. It's supported by the Arts Council of Ireland. For more information, go to thedublinreview.com and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review.